Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training, Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dijmar, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's um, Association for Molecular Pathology and Cancer Care um, Connect Education Workshop, What's New in Diagnostic Technologies for People Living with Blood Cancers? And this is part two of the role of diagnostic technologies in transforming the treatment of people living with, uh, with cancer. Um, and I just want to uh, acknowledge that today's program is uh, supported by Marathi Therapeutics, Pfizer, Takeda Oncology, and Pharmacyclics LLC, and AbV Company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I want to thank them for their support of the program today. Um, and we have many of you on the call today. There are over 235 participants on, the United, uh, on this call today from all of the United States who come from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have some international participants from Australia, Canada, India, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And uh, today's program is a really uh, one that I know many of you have waited to hear. It's an important call today, particularly um, in the context of COVID-19, um, there's a lot of information that you'll be learning today. And um, we have um, experts in each of the different types of, of blood cancers, and we also will have a pathologist on the call today um, who will also be um, uh, um, uh, addressing the role of pathologists and, um, and um, understanding your pathology report. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and we have actually quite a few speakers today. So our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is the Chief Lymphoma Program Associate Professor of Medicine, while Cornell Medicine Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Martin will be addressing how diagnostic technologies contribute to your blood cancer treatment options for lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, new and emerging technologies for lymphoma and clinical trials, and how you may participate in the clinical trial. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I thought I would focus largely on uh, diagnostic testing. And with respect to COVID-19, I think one of the interesting sort of hot topics with respect to diagnostics that we've seen over the past couple of months are, is the role of rapid testing for COVID-19. These are the, the home tests that you can now uh, even order from the uh, post office and have them delivered. One of the questions that has emerged is the role of rapid testing in the, in the setting of the Omicron variant. And we've seen uh, published or uh, published ahead of, or print, in print online ahead of, uh, or I guess available online ahead of publication, uh, several reports that have been evaluating the sensitivity of the rapid testing uh, with respect to the Omicron variant. And honestly, those reports have really been 
all over the map, with some suggesting that they are equally sensitive to Omicron compared to prior variants and others suggesting that they might be less sensitive. Ultimately, these tests detect parts of viral particles, and uh, they're only accurate if there's a sufficient amount of virus present in the space that's uh, tested. And so some uh, authors have suggested that they might be uh, less sensitive if the virus is replicating in different parts of the body, for example. Uh, some studies have suggested that swabbing the throat instead of the nose or in addition to the nose could improve the sensitivity uh, if the virus is replicating uh, in a higher degree there. To be clear, currently the uh, CDC does not recommend doing that. The devices are only approved for uh, nasal swabs, although other countries have recommended using them differently, and, and there are devices in development for that. I think the, the best uh, conclusion we can come to right now is that these tests are not perfect, but they were never meant to be perfect, and that's, that's a limitation, but it doesn't mean that they're not useful. So rapid testing still can be useful, and uh, particularly if you know that you've been exposed to somebody who had COVID-19 and you believe that you have symptoms that could be related to COVID-19. The tests are fairly good, but they don't 100% uh, replace common sense And that if you uh, know you were exposed and you're having symptoms, even a negative test may, uh, it doesn't 100% rule out uh, COVID-19. Um, moving on to uh, lymphoma. Diagnostic technologies come in a variety of different settings or different flavors. For example, we have imaging like CT scans, PET scans, MRIs. One of the key diagnostic um, uh, parts of medicine is uh, performed by our colleagues in pathology. And uh, uh, lymphoma in particular is a complicated disease for pathologists to deal with because there are about 80 different kinds of lymphoma, and every year there's another kind of lymphoma. And, uh, Fundamentally, I think that um, one thing that we can always do from the clinician's perspective is to ensure that our colleagues in pathology get the best quality specimen possible. And this can sometimes be frustrating for physicians and patients alike because often it means repeating biopsies or getting better biopsies when initial biopsies were... Um, non-diagnostic. And so sometimes we'll do a biopsy with a less invasive procedure. It doesn't come back and give us an answer, and we have to go ahead and repeat a, a better biopsy so that our pathologists have more material. And that's hopefully not always going to be the case, and we get better and better at it, but the reality of lymphoma is that it's just that complicated. Uh, the one that I wanted to focus on mostly is, our, is a technology that we're seeing move forward pretty rapidly, and this is uh, what we call minimal residual disease testing. Uh, there are a couple of different ways to do minimal residual disease testing. One is by looking at individual cells and comparing them. Another is by looking or doing specialized genetic testing, and that genetic testing can be done, again, in a variety of different ways, and also a couple of different compartments, including uh, blood and bone marrow. The idea of minimal residual disease testing is to, uh, there are a few different potential uses. One is to confirm that we have eradicated as much of the cancer as possible. 
Another is to look at the dynamics of the MRD testing, so changes of it during therapy to see if we're likely to get a very good response or not. And then lastly, uh, we can use it for surveillance. So in the case where we have treated somebody and we want to use a simple test to determine if the lymphoma is coming back or not. Um, unfortunately, although these tests are um, intuitive in many ways, and it, you know, you, you love to, the idea of being able to do a simple blood test to tell you whether or not the lymphoma has come back. What we have seen over the past year with a number of publications are that uh, it is not yet perfect. So in the setting of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, for example, um, we have seen that more sensitive MRD testing uh, methodologies can detect CLL when less sensitive technologies were not able to do so. So there's some uh, room to improve on the testing strategy. And what we've seen even with the most sensitive testing strategy in the setting of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the most common lymphoma in the world, is that MRD testing, uh, when it's positive after the end of therapy, interestingly, does not necessarily correspond to uh, the lymphoma coming back. So contrary to what you might think, you finish treatment, you, you think the lymphoma is gone, you do this test that tells you that it's still there. In fact, it may actually be gone, but the test can still find evidence of something there for some reason. Similarly, um, the negative predictive value of a test, so the test says it's gone, you do that, it's not a guarantee that it's going to go away forever. And interestingly, that strategy doesn't necessarily seem to be any better than just routine physical exam, doctor visits, and sometimes some imaging. So it's it's an exciting technology that I think has the potential to transform the way we practice medicine over the next decade, but it's going to take a lot more work to develop the assays and to be able to use them in the most intelligent uh, setting. And I think that's where ultimately comes down to the last point, which is clinical trials. These technologies don't uh, come out of nowhere. They, they get developed, and then the only way we know whether or not they work is by using them in the context of clinical trials amongst people who are willing to participate in clinical trials. Clinical trials also always or will often test interventions, and those interventions can often be uh, attractive or can help us to learn different things um, to make life better for people in the future with cancer. Fundamentally, uh, we know that most adults with cancer don't participate in clinical trials and the single biggest reason um, for non-participation is that it was not presented as an option. That's not to say that it's always the best option, and, and certainly I don't want to suggest that, but I think that um, very often people who might be willing to participate in a clinical trial or even who might be looking for a clinical trial never learn about a clinical trial option and so the best way we can counter that is by asking. Asking your doctor is the number one step. Is there a clinical trial that I should be considering? And then if that doesn't work, there are also other foundations and websites that I think we'll hear a little bit more about uh, in subsequent talks. Um, and I think that's where I'll leave it for now. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was really a wonderful way to start this program. Very comprehensive. 
lots of great information. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Weill Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing how diagnostic technologies contribute to the treatment of leukemia in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, new and emerging technologies for leukemia and clinical trials, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you, uh, Peter, for that wonderful start and, and Cancer Care for having us all on the call today. Um, I'd like to build on what Dr. Martin spoke, spoke about and talk a little bit first about COVID-19. Um, and I certainly echo his thoughts about uh, diagnostic tests. I, and we all, I think, in the cancer world and in the leukemia world are uh, particularly being asked a lot about, am I immune since I've been vaccinated? Can I check? Um, will that guide uh, further vaccination? And um, the quotation I've used to most patients when I've been discussing this is, we're, we're building the plane as we're flying it. Um, so what I'm getting at is the um, testing to understand how someone's response to vaccination um, has gone is definitely un, um, underdeveloped, and uh, doing, we're doing the best we can, basically. Many tests are available that can show antibodies generated by the vaccine. They're called spike antibodies, COVID spike antibodies. Those are the antibodies generated from an mRNA vaccine like um, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, the problem is we don't know what the results mean with regard to degree of protection. We can say they're positive or, or absent. We can infer something about the degree of relative positivity, but we don't have the precision to understand about the um, level itself. Um, this has led to a fair bit of anxiety, but what I would say to folks out there and all of us is we have to sit tight and um, do the best we can to follow our, our leadership in infectious disease and uh, at a national level and even international level. Um, and, you know, I, I think we all are encouraged by the excellent data from vaccines that support vaccination, although I know that is an individual decision. Um, and look to these tests as uh, useful um, when in context and to be um, not to demand them or rely on them too much because they really may not be driving our our advice or guidance. It may, really just may be what is the best practice for someone with a certain type of cancer or not, uh, depending on their immune function. Uh, there are other options. People can have infusions of antibodies now as a protective measure rather than vaccine. So um, I just wanted to share a word of, of ambiguity, unfortunately, when it comes to testing to see how much vaccine response worked. So delving into leukemia, um, I wanted to tell a quick story now about how during the pandemic, um, technology has really been a boon. For years, in, in order to be able to see patients um, from a greater distance being managed with a type of leukemia called CML, we developed the technology, or the, really the logistics, to be able to do remote molecular testing. So what that means is a patient I may be seeing uh, needs a test, um, we mail them a kit, and it's a high-quality, um, sophisticated diagnostic molecular test, as we said, for example, to know how they're responding to treatment. It's a simple blood draw. Um, and what happens is the patient may be in Alaska, Texas, California, New York, anywhere, 
although of course certain local conditions and, and, and other things do sometimes interfere. But what it meant was during the pandemic, we could have people's blood shipped to our, our center to be tested just as if they were there. And that really uh, lend us a hand in addition to the integration of telehealth, um, allowing us to really take care of patients with leukemia, particularly in chronic myeloid leukemia, having the data we need to be able to discuss their results, their progress, any shortcomings to plan other testing, which could be done locally, other care, which could be done locally if they couldn't make it or didn't feel comfortable or pandemic conditions precluded. Um, and it allowed us to preserve the level of care to, to at a high level. So technology really, and this wasn't the technology, but just the ability to get the technology done from a distance. So I think that's been a boon. Let me turn next to uh, the topic of just emerging technologies or new technologies in leukemia in general. If we think about leukemia broadly, probably the more, um, the more threatening forms of leukemia, AML and ALL, are definitely have advanced based on advances in technology. I, I would venture to say that the way we describe AML currently is, is vastly different than the way we, we described AML when I was learning about AML, which isn't that long ago, although it's getting longer and longer, and that we, we really characterize leukemia by breaking it down into its defects. We, of course, still look for the basic cellular elements. We know that blood cells that are, have, are the basis of leukemia often have genetic changes. And these are generally not genetic changes that are inherited or with someone lifelong. They're in the leukemia cells themselves. So we're testing the blood of the bone marrow, preferably, for changes in the cells, particularly in chromosomes. There can be chromosomes missing. There can be chromosomes that have fused inappropriately. We have um, blueprints from one chromosome next to blueprints on another chromosome, giving the wrong message to a cell and giving it the advantage to cause leukemia. That has been around for a while, and, uh, but we've clearly clarified the role of genetics and chromosome abnormalities in AML further. What's really pushed the field has been the identification of targets or molecular changes in cells. Same thing, the leukemia cells, what makes them tick, what's wrong with them. Um, to the point where we now have specific medications or specific preferred regimens for patients with certain types of molecular changes. So these might be uh, proteins or changes in the cell that are detectable um, by doing higher technology and more current methods such as genetic sequencing, um, even deep molecular sequencing where we're looking at very small amounts of, of a change. And Examples would be IDH or isocitrate dehydrogenase, SLT3, um, and these are specific targets in AML cells that are now amenable to different treatments. We have specific medications which target them. And again, AML is broken down into many different diseases now based on the genetics and the molecular subtype. Dr. Martin mentioned minimal residual disease testing. So if we look at ALL, which is um, another of the more um, challenging forms of leukemia that we see in both children and adults. The same rules apply. Um, we may not have as many of these targets and, and therapies specifically uh, geared towards the, the potential targets, but understanding that genetics is extremely important. We now can break ALL down into molecular types. For example, does it have something that looks like the genetic defect we see in chronic myeloid leukemia called BCR-ABLE? Or if not that exact defect, does it have something that behaves like BCR-ABLE? So we're really able to you know, break it down into its parts and understand what makes a leukemia tick. 
and that definitely guides our treatment. The therapeutics in ALL have really um, benefited from understanding what changes the cells um, display. What what surface markers, for example, do they do they display? And a lot of therapies have really taken advantage of that. So we've gone um, from an era of good treatment to an era of even better treatment with targeted therapies and non-chemotherapy regimens, and of course, engineered T cells um, to essentially harness our immune system against leukemia. So clearly the molecular footprint of, of leukemia makes a difference, changes the way we've treated AML and ALL. The molecular signature of CML, we were able to continue to follow it well during the pandemic and take advantage of, of excellent molecular testing even remotely. And I'll close with a few words on preparing for the current environment of leukemia care, which includes remote visits and technology. So first off, very basic. Um, know your clinic, know your provider, and don't be afraid to reach out to the, the team, if you will, that's supporting you. There's nothing um, worse than uh, a clinician being uh, eager to talk to a patient, a patient being eager to talk to a clinician or family that, that is, and some, some uh, minor technical difficulty stops them from connecting. Um, so whatever you can do to prepare and charge things up and make sure the link's there, make sure the link works. Call the office or see if they have a, um, a tool, perhaps online or in messaging that often is available. Sign up for what are called portals or electronic medical record um, access points, because that really often opens up a whole world of contacts with, with, the, with the care team. When you're ready, of course, just like the old days, if you were in person, have your list of questions. Um, those portals and those um, elect electronic medical record uh, access um, uh, means often allow you to have your reports in hand. Can you can share them? You can view them yourself. Uh, my patients can see their molecular reports often online, even sometimes before I've had a chance to see them, or, or hopefully not. But even in real time, we're looking at them together, and I think that's most important. So. Um, technology is important. I think the telehealth platform has really allowed us to better take care of people where they are, um, especially for those who are, um, it's more difficult to get to the office and it may be safer um, for us to have a mix between in-person care and remote care. And um, I, um, I think I'll close there by saying that technology has helped us in many different ways um, in, in leukemia, both acute and chronic. Thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was excellent and just a wonderful, really wonderful overview and, um, and also just a call out to the use of telehealth, telemedicine. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Messa. Dr. Messa is Executive Director of Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson, Mays Family Foundation, Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, Mays Cancer Center, and NCI Designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Messa will be addressing how diagnostic technologies contribute to the treatment of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, new and emerging technologies for MPNs and clinical trials, and accessing resources for blood cancer clinical trials. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messa. Uh, first, as it relates to COVID, I would very much agree with the comments of both Peter and Michael that the things that have been learned as it relates to the blood diseases are applicable also for patients with monoproliferative neoplasms. Second, as it relates to the therapies MPN patients experience, we have found 
that the vast majority do not increase the severity of COVID or increase the likelihood of developing COVID. That said, the subset of individuals that are on JAK inhibitors, either bruxolitinib or fidratinib, some appear to have a decrease in the antibody production if they are on these medicines. Additionally, uh, we think that they still benefit from vaccination. There are additional aspects to the response, including a T-cell response that is not measured in the antibody response that diminishes the severity in case they do develop COVID. So a little bit of a difference, but we still are strongly encouraging all to be vaccinated and boosted with these, uh, if you have these diseases. Overall, we have not found that COVID has been more severe in individuals with MPNs. We have also learned that if individuals are on a medicine like a JAK inhibitor, ruxolidinib or fidratinib, it is probably best that they not discontinue that medicine unless directed by a physician, but that overall we found that discontinuation may ironically be harmful and that sometimes it can increase the inflammation response one develops with COVID. Now pivoting to the second topic as it relates to new therapies for MPNs and clinical trials. There are many new things in development. So first, in the fall of 2021, there was the approval of ropegylated interferon alpha-2b. This is a new long-acting interferon given every two weeks that is now approved in the U.S. broadly for patients with polycythemia vera. Interferons have long been used as therapy for patients with MPNs. It can help to control the counts, potentially decrease the likelihood of disease progression, potentially decrease the uh, level of the molecular uh, mutation that individuals have with that disease, the JAK2 allele burden. We now have, so as a summary of where we, what we have approved, we have approved for patients with a central thrombocythemia, hydroxyurea that helps to lower the blood count. We have an agrolide that similarly helps to lower the blood count. We use off-label in those NET, long-acting interferons. There are now clinical trials of that long-acting interferon, pegylated interferon alpha-2b, for patients with ET if they failed hydroxyurea and have an elevated white blood cell count. If that sounds similar to the experience that you're having, you may benefit from that trial called the SURPASS-ET trial. Additionally, there are other drugs in development for ET, such as IMG-7289 from Imago Pharmaceuticals for individuals that have failed hydroxyurea. For polycythemia vera, we use hydroxyurea. We now have the approved ropegylate interferon alpha-2b, which I mentioned. We have ruxolidinib, which is approved as a second-line therapy for those that have failed uh, ruxolidinib or hydroxyurea, particularly if they have enlargement of the spleen or difficult symptoms. There's new therapies in development for polycythemia vera, including a, a therapies that are uh, mimic a protein in the body called hepcidin that is associated with inflammation. By having this 
medication. One example is resveratide that is currently in clinical trials. It can make individuals independent of phlebotomy potentially improve their low iron levels, so it would be beneficial. There's other drugs in that setting that are going to be tested, such as those from Ionis. There are many drugs in development for myelofibrosis. These are for individuals that have, there's both trials of agents in combination with JAK inhibitors in the frontline setting. Current frontline therapies include roxalidinib or fedradinib. Both can improve spleen symptoms and potentially prolong survival. There is the JAK inhibitor pacritinib, which may become approved even as early as later this month, particularly beneficial for people with low plate accounts, but also to improve spleen symptoms and the disease. We recently reported there was a public report on mamalotinib, which met its endpoints for the Momentum study, a JAK inhibitor that can also help to improve anemia and splenomegaly, and that was a trial in the second-line setting, but there's also data in the front-line setting. There are combination studies of agents along with JAK inhibitors in the frontline setting, such as Novitoclax, Calabresib, Parsiclisib, and many in the second-line setting. Now, the final part, how does one keep track of all these trials? Really, that is not your responsibility, but a key one to really interact with your physician. In general, these trials are for people in which their current circumstance is not treating that is not adequately addressing their needs. But connect with your physician. Additional resources out there include the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has a clinical trial resource number, the MPN Research Foundation, MPN Advocacy and Education International, and multiple other resources. Now, how does the pathologist fit into this mix? Well, pathologist is a critical part of the care team that you likely have not met. This is a subspecialized expert who specializes in looking both at blood tests the bone marrow tests to help work along with your physician, the clinician, in terms of the diagnostic and staging of the disease, an accurate diagnosis, understanding prognosis, or looking for changes over time. Uh, in the MPN setting, that is both the appearance of the bone marrow, such as scarring, such as any increase in blasts or movement towards acute leukemia, chromosomal changes, which is important genetic information, and finally, any molecular information regarding driver mutations, such as JAK2, CalR, or MPL, or other myeloid mutations. So it takes a team to, to care for you as you have these diseases. I'll leave you with a message of hope with many new therapies and development and many new technologies that it will benefit you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nessa. That was really an excellent uh, presentation on uh, MPNs and just um, a lot of excellent information for everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Matthew Butler. Uh, Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health, San Antonio. And Dr. Um, Butler will be addressing how diagnostic technologies contribute to the treatment of multiple myeloma new and emerging technologies for multi-myeloma and clinical trials and quality of life and lifestyle concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler. Sure. Thank you so much. I really uh, 
appreciate being part of these calls. I, I hope they're useful to people. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about myeloma and specifically uh, some of the technologies that, that we're using and some of the new ones that are coming along. Um, the first question when we're diagnosing someone or figuring out uh, a, a myeloma or something related to myeloma is um, just where in the body it is. And this causes some confusion um, because the, we, we generally find it in bones. Um, we, we find abnormal cells in bones when we do bone marrow biopsies. In some cases, we find lesions in bones that cause damage, that can cause pain sometimes. Um, and so people say, well, do I have blood cancer or do I have bone cancer? We think of this as a blood cancer because, that's the, because they're blood cells um, that are growing and causing problems. Um, but they're blood cells that, that in their healthy state naturally inhabit the bone marrow. And so if they become abnormal, that's still generally where they're found. And so we use a lot of imaging technology to try to see these problems, um, to see where uh, the the myeloma cells might be and where they where we might need to do something about them. Um, if we find, you know, and, and we've used X-rays for years, uh, we have CAT scans which show us similar information but in three dimensions, and then we have even more advanced imaging like PET scans that can find uh, find deposits of myeloma that we might otherwise miss. And uh, that helps us to figure out uh, how we should go about treating it and what kinds of problems we need to anticipate. Um, and the, the biggest complication that I see uh, uh, in my patients is uh, pain in the bones or sometimes even a broken bone because the myeloma has weakened it. And uh, so imaging technology lets us hopefully uh, see that before it happens and, uh, and then do something about it. Um, beyond that, what we really want to know and what a lot of the research on, on diagnosing and understanding this disease uh, comes from uh, what the pathologist can tell us. This almost always needs a sample of bone marrow, and so that's a procedure that people undergo. Um, uh, and, uh, and then we uh, have conversations with the, uh, the specialists in the laboratory who can, um, can study these. They, they take a tiny little sample, but they can, they can tell us a whole lot from it. Uh, there's a lot of different testing that they do, looking at the cells under a microscope, but also looking at the genes. And that's a recurring theme in this talk. You've heard in other d diseases where the genetics actually tell us a lot more uh, about how the disease uh, might behave and, and what treatments we should use for it than we can tell just by looking at the cells. That's a new era in, in cancer care that we're, we're squarely in now, uh, the age of cancer genetics. Um, and that's what's starting to unlock some of the doors to, to get really um, uh, tailored treatment that matches up. Now, in myeloma, we don't have a lot of these targeted treatments, but we have a few, and we're going to get more where we can look at the, the genetics of the cells, um, and we can use that to, uh, to, to choose just the right medicine uh, for your individual disease rather than a more broad treatment that, that works for all myelomas. Um, 
the other thing that uh, we can tell from bone marrow, and, and we're still learning how to use, this is quite new technology, is what's also been mentioned called minimal residual disease. These are tests that uh, can be done in a lab to find tiny microscopic remnants. Uh, when we treat a, a disease like this, um, we want to we get rid of it as much as possible. We want to eradicate as many of the cells as we can. Um, and uh, whether we can still detect cells in there after treatment tells us something about how well our treatments worked. It's still not, uh, not quite worked out what we do with that information, but, uh, but more and more labs are starting to do this on our bone marrow samples to give us the, the best picture on how we're doing. Um, so that I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the emerging treatments. And uh, um, this is always a moving target because we're constantly uh, developing new drugs, testing them, figuring out which ones work and how to use them. And, and that is a process of moving from small clinical trials in specialized research centers uh, to larger trials that more and more people can take part in. And then, to, and then ultimately, uh, when the treatment is really well proven, uh, it moving in to just become standard care for everybody. Um, uh, I always uh, encourage people to consider being part of trials. Um, there, it, it's, a, it's a personal decision, and there are pros and cons to doing it. Um, but the misconception that I always want to dispel is that um, that when you take part in a trial, you're, uh, you're taking a risk with whether you'll get a, a good treatment or a less good treatment. Um, those kinds of, the kinds of uh, trials that people think of where there's a placebo or there's a, uh, a treatment that, doesn't, that we know is, is not going to be as good, um, they're really not done in, in cancer care and, and they shouldn't be done because we want to make sure that every single person gets the best treatment we can give them. And if we're trying to, uh, you know, incrementally improve on, a tr on the best treatment we have, the minimum we want to give everybody is the best treatment we have. And, and if we can do, give uh, some people something that, that might be a tiny bit better, um, but we don't know that yet, that's what the, the trial can tell us. Uh, a lot of our, tr our uh, trials just have a single arm, so everybody involved gets the same treatment, and that same treatment is always um, what would be considered standard, tre standard treatment plus an additional medicine or plus some small change uh, to, to try to see if we can improve on it. The really large trials do have two arms, and there is a randomization, but, um, but whichever arm you're on, we want to make sure that, that uh, we're giving the best treatment that we have available or that we know of. Um, and, uh, you know, these trials are pretty carefully vetted to make sure that's the case. So, um, so, so where are we with trials? Well, at the very beginning uh, of having a disease, the, the treatments are pretty well worked out and we, we trust them. We have a lot of experience with them. We know they work well. So, um, so a lot of people aren't offered a trial as their first line of therapy. Some are, and, and it can be a great opportunity, and that's how the, the, the next generation of improvements comes along. Um, but the really, really new 
and exciting drugs are ones that we we try out uh, uh, for folks where the standard options haven't worked as well. Um, and we have several new medicines uh, that are that are you know going through that process right now. Uh, we have an oral drug called ibertamide that um, you know is, is maybe the next generation of uh, of oral therapy after. Um, uh, sort of a, a, an enhancement of drugs we use a lot called lenalidomide and pomalidomide. Um, then we have uh, this whole new technology uh, called cellular therapy, or you may hear the term CAR-T therapy. Um, and these are ways of uh, kind of customizing or, or engineering a patient's own immune system, taking some immune cells from them that are that are part of their own body that are perfectly compatible with them um, and making a small tweak so that those cells will target and attack the cancer cells and then giving those cells back. This has been a, 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 quite a breakthrough and it's really uh, shown promising results. It's still not a, a commonly used treatment. It's not an easy treatment to get because of the, it's the, the technical limitations of doing this process. Um, but it is, it, it's uh, every you know, research meeting we go to, there's new, new advancements and new data. And, uh, and for, for people uh, where the standard treatments aren't uh, doing the job, this is a really exciting option. Um, there's another option that's, that's coming along that works in a similar way, but is a lot easier to get, which are called bispecific antibodies. So instead of modifying cells that, that a person already has, uh, we just give them an, uh, give them a, a specialized drug that can uh, sort of lead those cells to the ones we want them to attack. Um, kind of stick the, the stick to the cancer cell and also stick to the the person's healthy T cell and uh, and kind of facilitate uh, a, a, an immune defense that that otherwise wasn't working. Um, and so these kind of are, are, are the other big promising avenue. We have several bispecific antibodies in development. None of them are FDA approved yet, but uh, we think they're going to be uh, at, at least one or two of them. And um, so, uh, you know, in the meantime, um, clinical trials are going on and, uh, and, and uh, it, people are getting them that way through, through at, at research centers and, uh, and they're showing good results. The final thing I wanted to talk about is, is quality of life in myeloma. I told you that it was a, a disease that can affect bones, and that can mean um, uh, changes in the shape of bones with, where these lesions have weakened a bone, and in some cases even a fracture. Um, these, are the, these are events that we really like to avoid as much as we can because they, they do affect quality of life. They can lead to chronic pain. Um, and uh, we can we have many ways to manage that, but we'd rather them that not happen in the first place. Um, the other big quality of life issue that uh, that some of my patients get is a particular side effect from one of the medicines that we commonly use, which is called peripheral neuropathy. Um, you get uh, kind of tingling or burning feelings in your hands and feet. Um, this can be a mild annoyance, or it can be a really uh, a distressing feeling that that can linger for a long time. So one thing I urge all my patients is, if you start feeling any, if you're on treatment 
and usually it's a treatment that contains uh, Velcade or bortezomib. Uh, it's a wonderful drug. It still has a, 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 a role in controlling myeloma. Uh, we have lots of research that shows it's useful, but, um, but it, it's known to do this as a side effect. And if you start feeling any strange or unpleasant sensations, um, you really want to let your doctor know that right away. And, and I seriously consider stopping or, or changing the dose of, uh, of that medicine the minute I, I start to hear that because uh, you don't want it, because if it goes too far, it can be uh, a, a major um, uh, drag on your quality of life. The final thing that I, I, I try to get it, all my patients to do as much as they're able is to be physically active. Um, this, it, it can seem daunting if you have uh, some neuropathy or you have some bone pain, um, and you certainly don't want to overdo it uh, and push yourself too hard, far, too hard and risk an injury. Um, but in the long run, I, I think we have very good evidence that um, that being active and, and and trying to walk and trying to stay keep your um, your muscles fit keep your bones uh, strong uh, keep your nerves kind of in use um, that that uh, really helps to limit the uh, the the, the, um, the symptoms of myeloma and uh, and the longer you don't do those things the harder it is to get back to them so um, so medicines are, are part of the answer, and we have lots of drugs to, to help with side effects, but, uh, but also uh, there's a lot you can do. Um, I think that's all uh, uh, the time I should use right now, but I'm always happy to answer questions about myeloma. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Butler. That was a superb presentation. Thank you so much. Excellent content, and I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Joseph Corey. Dr. Corey is a professor, um, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, Department of Hematopathology, Medical Director, Clinical Expansion, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, Executive Director, MD Anderson Cancer Network, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Corey will be addressing the role of the pathologist in understanding your pathology reports. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Corey. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be part of this program and to speak alongside my colleagues who have provided an outstanding background to what I'll be talking about. If any patient um, uh, is uh, living with blood cancer, they have definitely been touched by a team of professionals in the lab who generate results that guide treatment decisions, such as the ones presented by my colleagues. These professionals are led by physicians, physicians who are specialized in pathology and clinical laboratory testing, and who often have subspecialty expertise. In my case, for example, I'm specialized in the diseases of the bone marrow, the blood, and the lymph nodes. Now, if you walk into a lab, you'd see a humming operation 24-7 many times with a variety of testing platforms that evaluate cancer cells, evaluate the proteins that they have, the genomic composition of the cancer, and the genetic background from which some of these cancers arise. 
these operations are really as versatile as cancer is. And they're also, though, as personalized as each patient is unique. So as you think about your pathology report, as you recognize increasingly that viewing your pathology report is a great opportunity to understand what your treating physician is basing their approach on, I think it's important to keep some key components of that pathology report in mind. The first, and that is a point that was nicely alluded to by Dr. Martin, is that the sample that is used to generate the report, the source of the specimen, the adequacy of the specimen, sometimes the technique that was used to collect the specimen are all important components. And I cannot underscore enough the importance of sample adequacy as a foundation on which optimal clinical care should be based. There are many reasons for biopsies to be less than optimal. Those uh, oftentimes don't reflect uh, in any way on the users or on the professionals who attempt to obtain them. But what is important and what is important to be for us in pathology to be candid about is when specimens are not adequate and they are not sufficient to provide the full spectrum of data that is needed for optimal management and optimal clinical care, then the need for repeat sampling should be in the best interest of um, uh, moving forward in, uh, in, a, in a clear light. The, sec the next concept I would like to share with you with regards to pathology reports is that it's very important to make sure that the right test is done at the right time. The tests that we perform when a patient first presents and is undergoing their initial diagnostic evaluation can be very different from those tests that we use during the course of follow-up. Several of my colleagues alluded to the notion of minimal residual disease testing. Some people refer to it as measurable residual disease testing, or MRD for short. This is a very important notion that has uh, emerged, and its importance has emerged over the past few years. In a nutshell, and to put it simplistically, these are tests that allow us to detect what the microscope even cannot see, what we cannot really determine by using conventional tools for measuring whether the disease is still there or not. The reason this has become very important is because it has given us a deeper glimpse into the effectiveness of the initial therapeutic line. If that therapeutic line results in complete wipeout of the cancer in certain instances, most importantly in AML and ALL, acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia, then that's typically assurance that the, the next steps in the management 
can can be uh, in a certain way. If uh, MRD testing is positive, that opens up another um, uh, uh, set of approaches that uh, today are available to, cl to clinicians to consider. So performing the right test at the right time can ensure that the appropriate level of evaluation is done to provide the information that is needed for, pay, for care. Now that information falls into two big buckets. Typically, the most important uh, component or the most important bucket is the diagnostic bucket, is identifying what the nature of the blood cancer is. Now, as part of that identification, a series of tests need to happen to make sure that um, various considerations, which we call differential diagnostic considerations, are evaluated. Now, beyond the diagnostic bucket, what's becoming, what's becoming increasingly important, and you've heard cues to that in the excellent uh, points presented by my colleagues on the new therapeutics that are coming out that target specific uh, components of a given cancer. So as those targeted therapies continue to emerge and expand, and their role in the management um, of, of, of uh, blood cancers uh, gets better and better established, the part of the healthcare system that identifies those targets is pathology. It is the lab. And it is becoming increasingly important for us in pathology and the lab to make sure that the targets of therapy that we're detecting and we're reporting are detected with a high level of sensitivity, a high level of specificity to make sure that uh, our results are as accurate as possible because those results are being used uh, with, with uh, many downstream implications. The next a point I'd like to emphasize or to bring up as you think about your pathology reports, the role of the pathologist and kind of viewing all of that in the context of blood cancers is to remember that in most locations, in most institutions, data that comes into that pathology report may be coming from different sources. As some of my colleagues mentioned, evaluation takes really many faces. It could be microscopic evaluation. It could be evaluation using genetic testing approaches. It could be evaluations using uh, uh, examination of the chromosomal uh, makeup of the cells of a particular cancer. Most of these evaluations are standard. We do them all the time, but ensuring that they are performed on a consistent basis and ensuring that the results are ultimately integrated and become part of the pathology reporting scheme is gonna be very important uh, to keep an eye on. I know that many of my colleagues work closely with their pathology counterparts 
their institutions to ensure that the right testing is done, the results are available, and they're fed back into the pathology report whenever those results are ready. Now, based on those results and the compilation of those results, we often have multidisciplinary discussions uh, where physicians from various specialties and other members of the healthcare system from different backgrounds get together, discuss what um, the patient uh, uh, case is, and determine the best steps forward. Um, it's very important to remember that those are important communication platforms between the clinical care team and pathologists and other members of the, of the cancer care uh, uh, village. That, that really is what it takes to, to care for patients with cancer. <laughs> so uh, with this, I will um, wrap up, and uh, I'll be happy as well to take any questions, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Corey, um, for your excellent remarks. Very helpful. And now we're going to move on to questions um, from our participants. And so um, I'm going to ask our um, uh, ask Dee Tamar to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. We have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, uh, this question is for Dr. Martin. What about blood tests to detect cancer? Blood tests to detect cancer. Yeah. So there are, that's a great question. There are, uh, it's very much context dependent. There are uh, some cancers that are very easily found in the blood, uh, including the, the leukemias that Dr. Uh, Maus spoke about and the MPN. Um, the, the concept of the MRD testing uh, for the most part, requires us to know what the cancer we're looking for is. Um, there is, there are, uh, there are some some tests that theoretically could uh, detect cancer. One of the one of the challenges is though that uh, uh, the the definition of cancer ultimately becomes a little bit challenging. That sounds like a silly thing to say, but language becomes very important. Uh, I'll speak just specifically about lymphoma. Many of the mutations that we find in lymphoma cells are mutations that we also find in people without lymphoma. Uh, it's just a consequence of the normal immune system response over over the years of our life. It's, it's dynamic and it changes throughout time, and and changes happen. And so, it's very hard to develop a single blood test that will look for many cancer um, unless there's some real specific clue that somebody has a specific kind of cancer and that that cancer is likely to be present or detectable in the blood. So I don't think we're at a, at a point in time where we can just take somebody's blood and look for cancer, broadly speaking. 
Thank you. And um, a question um, for um, for Dr. Um, Morrow. Um, I I have blood cancer. Do you recommend I have the COVID nineteen vaccine and booster? Well, that's a great question. Thanks, Kellen. Um, you know, that's always an should be an individual discussion between uh, patient and their healthcare team, because, <clears throat> for example, there may be some patients in whom there may not be expected benefit. There may be some difference in the different vaccines and uh, precautions or, or special handling that might be needed. I think in general, um, most patients have been, um, have, are suitable for and are encouraged to get COVID-19 vaccination. We know that all patients with blood cancer may not respond the same. We're doing our best to try to catalog response to, and to understand other choices. And <clears throat> I would also just like to add be aware that there are other things besides um, vaccination, not to replace or as an alternative, because I think that's still our best defense against any of uh, such uh, infections, pandemic, pandemic, included flu vaccine, for example. Uh, but you know, pulling out of body, patients who for example, don't respond to that present. But, but have the discussion, ask, make sure you're up to date if you're eligible and can get vaccinated. Uh, we've only seen probably even added protection of blood cancer patients how difficult COVID can be and um, complications could be harder in our blood. Thank you. Um, and um, a question um, for Dr. Butler. Um, um, so, Dr. Butler, are the doctors recommending the fourth shot when eligible or wait for Omicron-specific shot now in development? That's a good question. Um, there are lots of people interested in a fourth shot, and there are people getting it. Um, in, in our practice, we've really tried hard to get help people get their third shot because uh, there's, there's very, very clear proven benefit from that. How much extra benefit you get from a fourth and who should get it and when they should get it, uh, I don't have good, clear answers to those, those questions yet. And so I haven't been pushing people for that. If people are really motivated, I, I say, yeah, I think it's reasonable to do. Um, but as far as, you know, my medical recommendation based, based on the evidence, I, I say get your three. And then if you're still concerned, if you qualify, and a lot of folks on this call would, by virtue of having a blood cancer, you would have some degree of immune compromise and you'd qualify for this new uh, product that's out there, which is um, uh, called Evushel. That's a monoclonal antibody treatment that provides about six months of protection and doesn't rely on your body's ability to make antibodies. So if someone hasn't, hasn't made a good antibody response from three doses, they might get a, a, a boost from a fourth. But there are people out there who may not get a, a good response from any number of, uh, of vaccine doses. And so this is another strategy where we can give them antibodies that are already made. They're, they don't require your body to even, even take that step. Uh, and they last for a surprising amount of time. They, 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 their, their duration is supposed to be six months. Um, we've been giving those uh, to some of our patients. We, we try to 
pick the ones who are the most immune compromised, uh, who will get the most benefit. And uh, they've been, been tolerated fine. We haven't seen any adverse effects from them. Um, so that's kind of what, where I'm steering people. Uh, but I, I think a fourth dose is uh, on the horizon as well. I think we'll learn more about that and, and it, it may become pretty commonplace, but I, I, I'm not sure exactly when and, and who. Thank you so much. And the questions, probably our last questions for Dr. Martin. Um, what effect does the microbiome have on immunotherapy? That's an interesting uh, question. So the microbiome uh, refers to specifically to uh, bacteria that are uh, effectively part of our body. Believe it or not, uh, we all carry around a lot of bacteria, primarily in our skin and on our skin and in our gastrointestinal tract, uh, something like three to five pounds of bacteria. I've even heard it, although I haven't personally uh, validated it, that there are as many bacterial cells that are as there are human cells in our body, which is kind of a strange concept. But the, the truth is that under most circumstances, these bacteria are a normal part of healthy life. And uh, they are also uh, part of disease and illness when the microbiome changes or when uh, certain disease states occur, the microbiome may change. And uh, it's an area of active research. It's an area that's uh, theoretically uh, straightforward. It's easy enough to take skin swabs or stool samples. Uh, but it's still something that I think is under evaluation. I think there are data that they, uh, that they are relevant. There have been some studies, for example, that have looked at uh, allogenic bone marrow stem cell transplantation, which is really the ultimate immunotherapy, re entirely replacing somebody's immune system with another immune system. And uh, uh, changes in microbiome were associated with uh, um, uh, effectiveness or uh, uh, toxicity related to allogenic stem cell transplant. So it's something that we're going to see uh, again, you know, I know the lymphoma literature fairly well, less so the other uh, heme malignancies in case my colleagues have anything to say. But so far, um, nothing really clear that the microbiome changes um, uh, anything there. Um, that said, there, there are a couple of areas specifically where we've been very interested in it, but uh, studies have been hard to do. Mantle cell lymphoma very commonly involves the gastrointestinal tract, and so many of us have hypothesized that there might be a, a relationship between the origins of the lymphoma and the microbiome in the GI tract. There are other uh, lymphomas that specifically arise in the gastrointestinal tract, certain kinds of marginal zone lymphoma and follicular lymphoma. The thinking there that maybe some chronic uh, stimulation from the microbiome there might have a role there are also some cutaneous lymphomas. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Uh, turns out it's a little bit harder to study than you think. Uh, it has to be done in large numbers to account for the heterogeneity that exists person to person and has to be done over time as well. But there is likely a role there. And that means that in the future, we may also have opportunities for intervention as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much. And um, I want to thank our speakers. This has been an amazing uh, program today. Um, and uh, I have to say, I just want to thank all of you who've really asked such great questions. I want to thank our speakers who've been phenomenal. Um, and um, Dr. Thibault, 
um, Senate and myself will, will speak after this, but we just wanted to um, be sure we got the, all of you in for the Q&A. Um, so I want to thank you all and um, just a great, great questions and great speakers today. And now um, we're going to move on um, to um, our next speaker, um, who will be um, Dr. Um, Sarah Sibalt Senate, who is Senior Manager, Public Policy and Advocacy, Association for Molecular Pathology, and partner group on today's program. And Dr. Sibalt Senate will be addressing free programs and services of the Association for Molecular Pathology, AMP and their website and phone information as well. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Thibault Sennett. Hello, everyone, and thank you for attending. The Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP, is a professional medical society that represents molecular professionals, the specialized doctors and qualified doctoral scientists who design, perform, and interpret molecular diagnostic tests. While our members perform tests for many different aspects of healthcare, including COVID-19 diagnostic tests, they are highly involved in molecular testing for cancer. As discussed in such great detail today, molecular professionals perform biomarker testing to help determine a patient's prognosis and guide the best treatment plan, in addition to molecular testing to determine a person's risk for developing various types of cancer. AMP is very involved in patient care by producing clinical guidelines and other educational materials, both for pathologists and ordering physicians, in addition to strong advocacy to help improve insurance coverage for these crucial tests. AMP has also become closely involved with the patient advocacy community and has launched a patient-facing website that provides an overview of what occurs in a molecular diagnostic lab in addition to descriptions of types of molecular tests, such as DNA sequencing, frequently asked questions, free infographics, and frequently updated educational resources. The link to the patient-facing webpage will be distributed after the call today. We invite you to click it over, and please feel free to contact us with any suggestions for additional material. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Savalt Senate. Uh, just wonderful to be partnering with you. Um, you basically really are a wonderful resource, and we'll be making that available to everybody on the call today as well. Any of the resources we mentioned during the call will be sent out to you, and of course, you'll get lots of information. You'll all be getting a Survey Monkey at the end of today's program, and in that will be this evaluation that Dr. Savalt Senate has mentioned as well, this inf additional information. Thank you so much. And. Um, I will be the next speaker. I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. I just want to go over some of the free programs and services that you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care um, really has two ways to contact us. One is through our Hope Line, and one is through our website. And um, either way, you'll get to speak to one of our oncology social workers. We have about 40 oncology social workers at this time, and they're here to provide a host of services to you, and they're all free. So let me go over what those services are. You can actually, um, when you call our Hope Line or our website, you'll, you'll be responded to by an oncology social worker, and they'll be there to offer you support. We also offer practical and financial assistance. We have a case management team of staff to help you get resources if we don't have them. Um, we also have a copay foundation, which, which helps you with some of the costs 
extensive costs of your chemotherapy treatments. So those are larger grants than we give in our Cancer Care Financial Assistance Program. We also have a number of online support groups, and those groups are for all different types of cancers, all types of blood cancers, including also um, all types of groups for both older adults, younger adults, um, caregivers, um, so groups for many different populations as well. And um, we also offer many of these uh, programs, about 75 workshops per year on many different types of topics. So um, we hope that you'll take advantage of these programs. We're glad you're on the program today. And now I do want to say a few things in terms of wrapping up about all the services Cancer Care offers, but also um, I also want to um, uh, tell you about um, what about those of you who wanted to ask a question today and didn't get a chance to. So um, there were so many questions and wonderful questions on today's program that we could have gone on all, all afternoon, frankly. So for those of you who have a question or asked a question or didn't get to ask your question, um, I want you to take your question back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best and they can provide the best services to you indeed. Um, they, um, so that is one resource. The other resource I would suggest you go to is we're going to give you a list of credible resources um, for those of you. AMP is one of them, um, Association for Molecular Pathology. That is a great resource to go to with your questions. That is an excellent resource. And we'll give you some of the other blood cancer organizations that are excellent to go to if you need additional information. But remember, your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines from both the um, hematologists, oncologists, to the um, oncology nurses, the oncology social workers, the patient navigators, the financial assistance people. So remember, that team is a large team of people, and they can help you as well. And, and wrapping up today, I would not want anyone to feel you're alone in coping with a blood cancer, any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you're part of a very large community of support, and we're here to help you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Have a good day.